Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place of Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is the penultimate episode of Season 3, uh, in which we will be talking to Tom Pitts. Now, I am, as always, coming to you from the headquarters of Wrong Place Right Crime in Central Oregon, where summer seems to be taking its sweet time and getting here. Uh, but uh, I guess that is keeping with the crazy times that uh, that we are in with uh, uh, all the events uh, swirling around in, in this country. I do hope that uh, in the midst of it all that you are healthy, that you're safe, and that you are listening. Uh, before we get to uh, Tom Pitts, I want to remind you that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down Out Books. Down Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it from the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If that is your bag, then uh, check them out at their website, downoutbooks.com. That's downoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down Out Books, take the journey with us. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with Tom Pitts. Well, hey, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so to draw an analogy of, of, of what I think of when I think of uh, Tom Pitts, the author, is like in music, in, in like the rock and roll world or whatever musical world you prefer, there's always that musician or few musicians that other musicians really dig who maybe he's not like he or she's not the headliner that all the people out in the world are super familiar with. Um, they may just know who he is, but the other musicians are like, wow, yeah, I love so-and-so's guitar licks, or I love how this person plays bass or whatever. Dude, you are that guy <laughs> in the that's, writer's I, I world. That, well, that's a, uh, not only a great compliment, but also a, uh, uh, a curse because, you know, that's, I, I, I don't know if it's necessarily true. I like to hear it, but it's a, uh, uh, you know, it's like the, what are they, you know, the, the band that never sells the, the, the painful critically acclaimed or the the band that never really sells records but inspires other people to start up bands you know uh but you know what i mean i came from uh music and rock and roll where i didn't have great success i was bubbling along in the underground and that's kind of my approach is i i didn't expect a lot of uh, accolades or money or fame or fortune so uh in in, in that sense uh i'm getting right what i getting getting what i asked for well Keeping with that rock and roll uh, theme, there uh, in the underground or whatever, did did was was that in San Francisco where you're based now or elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, I came down to San Francisco in 1984 and started a band called uh, Short Dogs Grow, which uh, we made some records and uh, toured around the country. Uh, we were on uh, Rough Trade Records, which was a good label, good indie at the time, and uh, uh, so yeah, that that was my uh, making my bones in the United States. I, I left Canada and and went to make it in the big city and ended up, uh, the band broke up, drugs got into the picture and, uh, the rest is, uh, not really history, but it's, um, it's at least been published once or twice. <laughs> where, where from in Canada originally? I was, uh, born outside Calgary, kind of between Calgary and Banff or raised rather. I was born in Calgary, but raised, uh, uh near a town called Cochrane. Uh, I'm a big hockey fan, and I, I worked in Canada quite a bit for about four years after I retired doing some teaching. So I have a special affinity for Canadians. Well, you know, uh, I was going to say you're clearly a, a northern guy because I was going to ask while we were chatting before the interview, 
uh, where exactly you were from, because you you certainly have a northern, uh, it's not really a twang, I guess it's a northern bent to your accent. (laughs) I don't have an accent. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what everybody in Minnesota says. (laughs) A lot of people have accents, but I don't. Um, Yeah, yeah, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and I'm living in Central Oregon now, so uh, uh, I definitely have a stone's throw. Yeah, Pacific Northwest uh, accent, if you will. Um, so you went from playing rock and roll and to writing books and which, you know, I, I did a little research on you before to, you know, like I always do. Uh, but what I didn't do was look at the order that your books came out. So, uh, which, which one was first? Uh, well, it's, yeah. And, and which I guess with the case with a lot of uh, authors, it's not necessarily the order they were written in. Uh, the first book I wrote was a novella piggyback, which was really a, uh, actually that's not true. I, I, I wrote the novella uh, Knuckleball, uh, but it didn't get published. I kind of sat on it. Uh, I wrote Piggyback. Kind of felt like I, I was stretching my wings and, and, and getting a feel for things. Uh, then wrote Hustle, uh, my, my comment on, on drug addiction and street life, which is, uh, is you know, kind of my, uh, I, I don't know what you say, it is, uh, but it, it, I mean, it's my debut novel, but it really, it, it was my, my calling card, if you will. And uh, then American Static. Then I wrote Cold Water, then 101. Uh, and 101 came out before Cold Water because Cold Water ended up getting me in a battle with my agent over language and some of the action that happens in it. We ended up parting ways. So I ended up getting another agent. And by the time I had landed the second agent, I had two books, 101 and uh, Cold Water. And we had to make a call on which one was going to be more sellable. She tried to sell 101, didn't, went with uh, Down and Out. And so Cold Water, I just decided, no. We're not going to do the dance with the major uh, publishing houses. Uh, we're just going to put it out and uh, with with the other three books. So I have uh, my four novels together with Down and Out. And Cold Water just came out, right? Yeah, uh, uh, Monday. And we're, we're recording this on the 21st of May. So by the time this uh, episode comes out, it'll be almost a month old, it'll be a few weeks old anyway. Um, I was fortunate enough to get uh, an arc of, of Cold Water. So I've read it already. Um, and I'm curious what parts... Spoiler aside, if you can do it without spoilers, what were the points of contention that uh, that you had that uh, caused you to part ways with your agent? Well, there, I mean, I, I, it will get a little spoilery if, if if I go too much into detail, but essentially, it was a uh, uh, the vile, evil antagonist, um, which it, it, in in this book is basically you know it's it's a, and it's a truly Californian uh, uh, monster, although that I'm sure they're they're on either coast. Is <laughs> is basically a trust fund baby gone gone bad. And uh, and he does some despicable things, and 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 she just didn't think that it was going to pass muster with uh, any editors. And yeah, and ironically, the segment there's a segment in the middle where uh, uh, the the couple, the innocent couple that are drawn into the singer, are kind of kidnapped, and the woman's in a car with the bad guys going through some cornfields and stuff. And part of that scene was uh, 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 what what we parted ways over. And ironically, uh, it was the segment that my next agent read to the her agency as a uh as the reason why we should take this writer on so you know one man's meat is another man's poison yeah it's totally it really does point out how subjective art is and yeah uh i, I really it, I, go, go ahead. ahead no you're the guest go <laughs> i've already lost my train of thought go ahead oh i i was just gonna say that i really enjoyed cold water it, it was uh a very interesting uh contrast in terms of 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 voices because you have several different characters that 
you, it's a third person tight viewpoint throughout, but you, you have multiple viewpoints. So you get the, the both of the couple that are drawn into it, but you also get other people, uh, other people's viewpoints, including the fixer that gets called into the situation very early on. And he was pretty fascinating because there were layers to him. So, uh, so if you haven't picked that up yet, if you're listening to this, you, you get on Kindle, get to the library, whatever, go to the bookstore and give it a read. Um, it's interesting to me that the order of how you wrote these are, is so different than the order that they came out. Coldwater was the one that's uh, uh, truly out of place. And, and I think writing wise, I can, I can see uh, a progression in the novels, but Coldwater, man, there was some crazy hard times going on. You know, everybody, you know, this, there were some dark days while I wrote this novel and it shows up, I was working out demons. Everybody has that sort of story, but truly uh, uh, it was a, it was a, a rough spell. And I, 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 I wasn't sure whether it was ever going to come out, but I didn't really want to, I'll leave it either. It's a different book for me. Although the the roving POV is something that that I uh, that I use constantly, and I try to improve and 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 change and, and get better at. But the uh, um, it just it's uh, languid. The the prose was a little bit arty. The the whole sort of the flashbacks to the character uh, uh, that sort of come into almost like dream sequences was something that seemed very, very sort of arty for me. Uh, so yeah, I, I get very I'm a little self conscious about it. You know if I tend to think that if you've read one of my books, uh, you might really like Cold Water. But if you haven't, uh, I and it, this is probably a terrible thing to do, but I'd say, you know, hey, maybe you should read one of my other books first. But that might be just the paranoid, self-conscious, uh, you know, writer coming out. Well, that's that's I think most of us feel that way. I mean, what is what is showing somebody what you've written even after it's done, but much less in the early drafts. I mean, it's like walking into a party full of people completely naked and going, huh? Huh? Well, what do you think? Huh? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, yeah. you feel that vulnerable, right? Yeah, it's very true. And it's, but at the same time, I, I had to, you know, even though I knew it was going to uh, not be received as well as uh, some of the other books and there was going to be a couple bumps, I had to, I couldn't leave it in a drawer. I had to, uh, I had to put, I had these four books written about the same kind of worlds in Northern California, although they're all standalones and none of them intersect with any characters. There, there's a common denominator of just these, uh, uh, these low lives in Northern California. And I want to, mm -hmm. before I try some sort of metamorphosis onto something else, I just wanted to put them all out together. And I'm super glad that they're all with uh, Eric over at down and out as well. Yeah. Uh, Lance there at down and out, he described my Spocompton series as, you know, not being one that is a sequel from one to the other, but being a geographic series. Um, now there is some character overlap, but it's, it's pretty minor. Um, it sounds like that's kind of what you've got with those other four books is more of a geographic setting series, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, first book, second book, third book sort of thing. Yeah. And, and, and the geographic thing was, was sort of an afterthought. It was a, uh, uh, Hey, they're all set up here. So we'll call it the Northern California. But as you know, I mean, Coldwater ends up in Malibu and, and the uh, uh, 101 was set up in uh, Humboldt, which is, uh, you know, the, the northernmost uh, northern California. But, uh, but yeah, there, there's, among other common denominators, I just felt like, yeah, it would, it would, be, it would be missing a piece if, if, if I tried to move on with, without cold water. And, and lo and behold, you know, just like, uh, just like the odd song or the album or, or the, you know, the, the runt of the litter or whatever the case, uh, it's in many ways uh, uh, my favorite. So, you know, 
Well, it's 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 my first Tom Pitts book, so you know I'll be experiencing the other ones having read that first, and and uh, so I'll let you know if that's a bad idea or not. But but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know people people come to artists in different ways and from different directions, and so uh, you know maybe it'll be kind of cool if some people are introduced uh, to your work through this particular one and uh I, I don't imagine it'll be too big of a stretch away from the other work that people will be uh put off it's not like you yeah. went from being yeah. rock and roll to opera yeah and, and so of course and and, and in, in you know the, the writer's brain it's always you know so dramatic and you know and other people are like uh, really i didn't notice that one typo or, or whatever the case you know it's just uh-huh. you know it's you, it's like getting off stage and 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 you uh, you realize your guitar is out of tune nobody fucking noticed that your you know your your high e string was a quarter bit out of tune but to you it's it's you know it's it's like you walked out into the party naked you know it's 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 that it's that same thing you know at yeah, this point okay. in my life, I'm used to being uh, exposed and, and, and vulnerable. So uh, you, you'd think I'd be, it wouldn't bother me. I live with a very insistent, self-assured cat who just forced his way into the study. You may hear him in the background here. Uh, same here. I, a 27-pound cat that forced his way in a few moments ago as well. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, they have something to say about writing, and they want to be part of the conversation. Um, so, way complexes. <laughs> so uh we talked about geography a little bit um you know for you that's the geography of of northern california maybe the the the, the bay area and the east bay area in particular um how, how big of a uh character would you say the setting is in your books because in some it's a pretty big character like, like christopher moore writes in 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 san francisco and uh, a lot of his books are set there. And I would say San Francisco is kind of like another character in those books. Um, you know, s- same thing for yours or, or is it? Well, uh, you know, more I, I certainly heard with, with, uh, with hustle and American static, w- w- which were so rooted in San Francisco. Uh, I heard that a lot and I'm very rooted in San Francisco and I'm, Having been, you know, uh, uh, I was a messenger in the 80s. I owned a messenger company in the 90s. I, I was a cab driver, a cab dispatcher. I, I've done just so much stuff on the streets. I'm always very accurate, and the streets themselves in the city is, it does become a bit of a character. But um, but I realized that I do that no matter where I am. You know, when, when I, the, the parts of Sacramento uh, uh, that, that are in cold water, I made sure are deadly accurate you know uh, uh and, and uh and the same with with, uh, with the portions in malibu so i think you know it's it's nice for me to and you know i got an awesome blurb from a tj english he said you know that i'm the the bar, crime bar of the bay area or something something to that effect which is nice to hear but i think truly i've always been one of those guys when i'm reading a book you know if i'm reading galveston or or, or, or some books set down there i'll google map you know, I, cause I want the full visual picture. I want the full painting, you know, I'll take a peek cause what is he talking about? The white cliffs of what? And I'll take, you know, so I, I always do try to be accurate. And I think that's important for any sort of, I don't know if you call them a realist, but some, you know, when you're trying to paint an accurate down to earth picture and you want people to smell the smells and feel the feels, uh, yeah, I think you got to do that no matter what city you're in. Setting is an interesting thing because I think it matters more to some people than others, but to those like yourself that it matters, it matters a lot. Um, and even to those people who might say it doesn't matter as much, I, I think subconsciously it, it really has an impact. I mean, when 
uh, I don't know who you use as your first reader, but uh, like most writers who are married, it's my wife. And uh, one of the things that she points out when she likes something is that it's this little detail or that little detail that really cinches it for her. And, and, and location is, uh, you know, one of those things. So I think you, you hit on a really big point. Well, I think that that's when it, you really do. I mean, if I, I was uh, going back and forth between Sacramento, uh, we were looking after my mother-in-law's house after she passed for a couple of years. Uh, so it was like a few days there, a few days here, which is why I wrote about the block I did in, Sac- uh, in Sacramento. And you really do, you, I think you do kind of need to, to write what you know to get those, those just little touches. But yeah, it's like the, the guys who watch Steve McQueen's Bullet uh, in San Francisco and like, wait a second, he jumped off that hill and landed on some other street, <laughs> or that's a one way, you know, to get yeah. too crazy about it. But it can take you out of the story. I'll give you a, maybe not the best example, but uh, I've been watching lots of like weird old uh, uh, beatnik documentaries and stuff in the morning. And I was thinking about, I can't remember which uh, um, Jack Kerouac book it is. It's like Dr. Sachs or, or, or Dharma Bums or one of them. But it's, you know, to do his uh, Romanoclef, he set the book in New York. But it was actually in San Francisco or vice versa. But just sort of that sort of uh, uh, just sort of cut and paste, you know, placing it somewhere else to, to change the, the, you know, the, the names of the innocents or whatever. But it just did not. Uh, I can't quite settle in. You know what I mean? I, when I know that it's not third street or it's, you know, it's supposed to be, it just, it has to be, yeah, it has to be the the setting. I'm not an abstract, uh, uh, enjoyer. I have to, I have to have my feet on the ground. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, you couldn't write Matthew Scudder, not in New York, right? I mean, New York is such a, a pivotal part of that Lawrence Block series. And I think it comes down to culture. I mean, this is a huge country and and while there is a distinctly American culture, I guess, that you could probably put your finger on, uh, I think you could more accurately say that there are dozens of American subcultures that are pretty, you know, vastly different. And so that cut and paste uh, uh, technique that you're, you're referring to not working, I think that's why it doesn't work, because a New Yorker is not a Los Angelino, and, you know. Uh, yeah, Washington State is very different than Washington D.C. Yeah, and, and those and those are the the textures and the tapestry that make it you know that make it great. I mean, you know, you, you don't always notice those things. It's like like your wife says about the the details and things. Uh, I hate to use the musical metaphor again, but it's like you don't really notice in a band when the drummer's really good. You know, you just notice, hey, this band's pretty good. They're tight. They're awesome. But if the drummer's bad, if he's if he if he's loose, then you do notice, and you don't. You know, it's just like it doesn't quite work. You're not really interested. You walk away, and it's like that. It's not just prose and punctuation, but the other details and stuff. If they don't, mm-hmm. if they don't stitch together, or if there's too many of them, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I, I find the same thing in dialogue too. If if the dialogue isn't, if if it sounds stilted, uh, it's as bad as that cut and paste could be anywhere sort of setting. Yeah, or or two on the nose, which uh, I had I had to sort of learn that whole sort of uh, dialogue dance with, uh, and I thought I was great at dialogue. I thought I had a, a very sort of natural back and forth, but then I got into uh, this the the screenwriting business with with uh, adapting hustle, and it's just it's yeah, it's a whole other animal <laughs> when it comes to yeah making dialogue work without the pros in between. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine I haven't done any screenwriting, so uh, I'm, I'm totally talking out of my uh, nether regions here. But 
it would seem to me that it's like going from writing nonfiction to novels. I mean, it's a pretty big uh, shift in terms of what you have to emphasize and how you have to get there. Yeah. And, and, and the, the sort of the, the, the Hemingway uh, ice, iceberg uh, theory of, of just showing 10% and, 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 and letting people figure out the other 90% uh, mm -hmm. is, is not only fully in play, it has to, has to be uh, completely effective or else it doesn't work. You just let people confused, you know? Yeah. Cause of the and time it's funny. factor, right? Uh, speaking of details, I read a, 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 a you know another writer that I really like. Speaking of book recommendations, is Richard Price. Almost anything he does is, is great. But I realize, and I, I'm writing a novel presently, and I was reading Richard Price at the start, uh, and I realized how much he was affecting me in a negative way because he's someone he is the opposite of the uh, uh, the Hemingway uh, iceberg thing. He'll give you ninety percent of an iceberg, and then but you're only supposed to take away ten percent, and you don't always really know what 10% you're taking away. You know, he's got so, such a rich cast of characters with full backstories and all this kind of stuff. And it's not all pertinent to the story, but he makes it work. And I don't think, I mean, that's a talent beyond uh, uh, what many of us are capable of because he can make it work. But I think, you know, most people, it's just, it's too much detail. Isn't that really what people are, what they're talking about when they say, you know, find your own voice, find your own style. I mean, that works for him. Um, but you know, probably wouldn't work for a lot of people based on both talent and, and just their own voice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I had this, uh, uh, not really a professor. I guess he, he's my English teacher in, in 12th grade, but he was Oxford educated. So he liked to think of himself as a professor. And, uh, he was really a rugby coach at this weird, uh, boarding school I went to you know, on Vancouver Island uh, for my 11th grade. Anyway, he used to say this thing is that writers must have to, uh, must write a million words before they can call themselves a writer. And he would say it over and over, a million words, which sounded astronomical to me, you know, writing you know, your little handwritten essays in, in, in grade 11. But, uh, uh, but I think not only was he right, but uh, in hindsight, a million words isn't that many. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you get down the road. But yeah, it takes a while to to, to find your voice. Uh, I read Hunter S. Thompson used to literally retype other people's novels, like the whole novel, just like a typist, sit there and just retype the whole thing, trying to just get the, that, the, the rhythm, the syntax, the syncopation of other writers. Well, that makes me feel like an incredible underachiever, I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, or maybe someone who didn't have a speed problem. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, aside from, from writing books, you've done a few other things. Uh, we, you know, kind of alluded to your, your musical career earlier, but, uh, you are, you had a podcast for a while as well. I did the podcast, it, you know, there, there, I, I mean, uh, kudos to you for, uh, for keeping them rolling. Cause it, it was tough for me. I was pretty, I was at the time, uh, Joe Clifford and I were running a flash fiction offensive, uh, and I was doing the podcast and I just, you know, it was about immersing myself in the writing community. And, uh, and, 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 and it's a good thing. If, if you're wondering if you should get more involved, just like, you know, your kid's school or AA or whatever the hell you're wondering, you get more involved in, you get out of shit, what you put into it. And, uh, I would say that's very much true for the writing game. So I, I was, and I, I met a lot of people do the podcast and, uh, and, and the magazine. So yeah, I, uh, Spreading myself kind of thin, and now I've reeled it all back in, and now I'm not too engaged at all, unfortunately. What would you say was the best part of uh, hosting and having a podcast, and what was the most difficult part? Uh, the best part is uh, 
would be making, you know what? Okay, I, I would say uh, great interviews with uh, writers that are further up the food chain. You know, I, I did some, uh, and I, off the top of my head, well, I won't roll through. I do the name drop thing, but I, I did some pretty good ones. But more so than that, I think it's being able to help writers that are more in a lateral position. You know, guys are around the same spot on the uh, on the on the ladder as you are, and you're able to, you know, just to help. I mean, I, that's that's that for me, and, and with the magazine too. Uh, a lot of times, you know, it was flash fiction. We were publishing people for the first time, and to mm -hmm. be sort of the gatekeeper on that for people and, and being the guy that put their first story out uh, mm -hmm. was great. And I still remember, you know, the guy who can't, can't gallon over at uh, shotgun published me the first time and I'll never forget him for that. So that was the good side. Mm -hmm. The difficult part was constant uh, technical stuff. I had a lot of technical issues that happened. You know, I wasn't recording them live or I wasn't recording them and then putting them out. I was doing them live. And uh, one time, I had Joe Lansdale on the phone for about 13 minutes the night before Happen Leonard premiered on TV. It was one of the biggest interviews I had. It was a great conversation. About 13 minutes in, it dropped. The first part didn't go out, wasn't recorded. It was gone forever. So we had to start blank halfway through the interview. And it, and it just, stuff like that, those kind of hiccups just killed me. Yeah, that's kind of stilted too when you when you've already talked about something for, you know, 10 15 minutes and now you're going to go back and you're not trying to recreate the conversation but you're covering the same ground and it just doesn't have that spontaneity and spark to it. It doesn't. And 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 it just and aside from all the clumsy sort of like hang on, pause and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was such a knucklehead. I should have been recording them you know, from, from the get go. But, uh, but mm -hmm. when we started, the idea was maybe you can get call-ins and, and live callers and stuff like a real radio show. And, uh, uh, it, it just, I just was not <laughs> set up for it. I always, <laughs> that, that feeling of walking off stage and with realizing your guitar is out of tune happened almost every time. And I would just, I never listened to them back. I, 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 not one, not even Joe Lansdale, not Max Allen Collins, not anybody. I, I just, I couldn't really? bear it. I couldn't bear it. Yeah, yeah. I have to listen to them because I, I unlike the the live versions that you did, these I record these and then and cut them together. The benefit of Much that, better. I suppose. Well, yeah. I mean, when I say something stupid, I can get rid of it, and and if the ho if the guest stumbles a little bit, I can help out there too. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think length is something that uh, uh, I I didn't figure out, or, or, or Pam and I hadn't. You know, it, 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 it sort of occurred later on. It's like we should keep them probably about a half an hour, twenty minutes instead of like. Sometimes I just ramble on. Chris Walter and I, I think went on for an hour and a half. Who the mm -hmm. heck wants to listen to that stuff? Nobody. Well, you know, I think people do, but I think it's less often and fewer people. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I try to keep, you know, this, this show generally under half an hour, except once a month where we yeah. do a deeper dive. And, and so, you know, if you're in the mood for it, you know what it, it is walking in, but most of the time you're getting 20, 30 minutes max and, and that's, yeah. you know, everybody's got time for that. I mean, I have to admit when I, when I look at a YouTube video or I look at a podcast, uh, uh, I do check the runtime and if it's, you know, an hour 15, it better be something, you know, that I'm really interested in or I'm, yeah. uh, it's going further down the queue at the very least. Yeah. Cause you don't, you don't say to yourself, I'll listen to 15 minutes and quit. You go like, well, that's a big commitment. What? And right. you go to the next one. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah I, I, yeah. I think that's true. And I wonder, I think a lot of people, since there's so much less commuting happening, I wonder if there's uh, less listening going on, because I think that's what was uh, really sparking a lot of the podcast fever. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, 
as a consumer, I, I don't commute now. I, I you know I live and work at home, and even before this uh, COVID nineteen quarantine kicked in and and everything so this hasn't been as big of an adjustment for me uh but you know for me it's you know when i go for a walk or working in the yard or you know whatever or when i'm you know going on a long drive but i think a lot of people are exactly like you said they're they're doing it during their during their commute which makes that 20 30 minute range kind of a sweet spot because anybody who commutes probably commutes at least that long oh that that's when i discovered uh, well, I didn't discover Audible. I, I, when I discovered audiobooks, because I was uh, buying cassette tape audiobooks uh, from thrift stores. But when I was doing the, I told you the Sacramento, San Francisco shuffle a few years ago, twice a week, I'd have to make that journey back and forth. And, uh, and I absolutely uh, uh, I fell in love with them. And because I was buying from thrift stores too, I was buying a lot of like random stuff that I wouldn't normally roll the dice on because it was a dollar. You know, I'd, I'd listen to you know, John Grissom books or whatever that I'd be, you know, you know, oh, John Grissom, pip, pip, no, no. And, uh, and, and finding out that I really enjoyed them because of the story or whatever the case. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. um, so when, when Audible, uh, I ended up digging, yeah, the, the, the book about, Tor- it, well, it was random. I didn't have a lot of choices for what I got, but, uh, <laughs> uh but, but I, uh, I, I started to really truly appreciate what was happening. Then you started hearing a lot about the supercommuter and all this stuff. And, and lo and behold, the podcasts and, uh, audiobooks had a, explosion and i definitely think because it's all that increased commute time you know it allows you to read more than one book at a time i mean you can have a book on your bedside or wherever it is that you physically read but then you can have one fired up and ready to go on your phone too and and you know audiobooks they've they're a performance piece there are some really great narrators that really add an element to the prose itself i mean i listened to uh fisher stevens narrate a uh a Christopher Moore book and, and, you know, it, it added an element to it. You know, it's, it's like when somebody does a cover song of somebody else's song, you know, and, but they don't totally reinvent it, but it's still got its own little flavor to it. Yeah. Sometimes it's worse and sometimes it's better. I tell you what, like uh Will Patton, uh, oh, yeah. you know, they talk, talk about unfilmable movies uh, uh, since Kerouac is on my mind, you know, the, on the road is an unfilmable movie because it's all, you know, it's all narration in the head or whatever. It's all in, in the prose. But his reading of that book is the closest thing they're ever going to get to a great motion picture of, of on the road. Cause he, I think he just, boy, that's a tough book to read. And he just, he's just a master reader. All his James Lee Burke stuff, anything he reads, I, I, uh, I think raises uh, the bar for, for the book. I think a little, yeah, he does a lot of Stephen King's too. He did the uh, Bill Hodges uh, trilogy, yep. that Mr. Mercedes and those. And I think he did The Outsider too, which I also read by audiobook. Uh, he's just fantastic. Uh, yeah, he does. Uh, he also did, um, he does a lot of Dennis Johnson. He did Dennis Johnson's Tree of Smoke, which is, uh, he just has a real way of making uh, <laughs> whatever he's reading sound very literary and serious. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Uh, so if I die, uh, you know, uh, and and no one else, you know, has has any claim, please, you know, see if you can read my stuff for me. And my last, <laughs> this will be my last request. The other guy uh, that I would love to have narrate one of my stories and maybe one of the Grifter song stories or something would be a good fit for him. But he is a guy named Alan Sklar. Uh, he he's done a lot of like the. Uh, Lawrence Block Grifter stories, you know, the yeah. uh, the Grifters game and and things like that. And he's also done a lot of the Parker novels and, you know, lemons never lie and things like that. So anyway, uh, we went down a bit of a rabbit hole there, but, uh, it's a pleasant one. Um, well, it's good though. Cause I'm sure not, not only your, your listeners, but myself, you know, the problem with audible is they, they, 
you know, are always pummeling you with these credits. So, you know, it's, it's nothing for me to go, Oh, what audiobook? Yeah. I'll roll the dice on that. Cause I've got credits mm-hmm. backed up. So mm-hmm. unlike a lot of book purchases, you know, they're, it's practically free. Yeah. Having the narrator as an element too might be what gets somebody over the hump for sticking with a book, you know, too. They might enjoy the narrator and that helps them enjoy the prose a little more. Whereas if they picked it up and read it, the voice in their head might not have been as good. Yeah. <laughs> so they true. might not have continued I, I, I tell you what, before you drop the subject, uh, since I still got promo codes from the one audiobook I have, American Static, if any of your readers uh, uh, write me and say that they bought any one of my books, I'll send them a promo code for American Static and they can have it for free. There'll be no checking up on that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so let's give out the email you want them to send it to then, or is it there just to contact me on your website? You can contact me on my way out. No, my email's uh, Rev Tom Pitts, as in the Reverend, uh, R-E-V-T-O-M-P-I-T-T-S at Gmail. But I'm out there on Facebook and Twitter. It's easy to find me. Uh, uh, reach out and I'll, I'll make sure it happens because uh, I got like... Ten, at least 10 of them left and I, I should have gotten handed them out and I've forgotten about them. And I just realized that uh, they should be out there. Oh, it's a great way to get an introduction to, to somebody. Um, you are out there, like you said, and one of the places you're out there is uh, your, your blog. You have a pretty, pretty active blogging uh, uh, habit. Well, I did, you know what it's, it's, it's smoke and mirrors too. Cause I, when it, a book release, the last few books, I tried to space the books, 18, the releases 18 months apart down and out was like, Hey, once a year, I'm like, that's, that's too soon. I'm still like trying to do promo for the last one, but then the next one pops up. Uh, uh, so I, I do have a habit of, uh Oh, I got a release coming up. I better, you know, uh, blog a few times and try to uh, steer some attention towards me or have a reason to go online. So yeah, I, I, I'm woefully bad until I, I, I need the audience again. <laughs> well, I, I, ch- I saw a recent post that you did where you referenced uh, Arthur Rimbaud. Am I saying yeah. that right? Because you mentioned not saying it right. Now I'm worried I didn't see it right. Oh, uh, it's it's Rambo. It's Rambo. Rambo. But I, Rambo. But as, as a kid, I asked my teacher about Arthur Rimbaud. <laughs> <laughs> no. I never would have heard of Rimbo if it wasn't for Eddie and the Cruisers. That's how I heard of him. Did you ever see that movie? I, I have, but I don't, I don't remember that reference. Yeah, that's where the, uh, after they make the, you know, they have the hits of On the Dark Side and all those hits and everything, and they're making the next album, the title of the album is A Season in Hell, and, and Eddie, yeah. whatever his name is, I can't remember his last yeah. name in the movie, uh, the Michael Perret character, he pulls yeah. a Rambo. He, you know, he fakes his own death uh, rather than just run off and do whatever Rambo's doing. But anyway, that's just a quick aside to say uh, that you, you referenced him in a recent blog post that I thought was pretty interesting. Well, I, me and Clifford have this habit. I think it's not a habit. It's, it's, it's sort of like a lifeline. We throw to each other often when we're frustrated and it'll just be a short text. Just writing is stupid. Cause I mean, cause I'm saying just like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the all encompassing. What the hell are we doing this for? What's the point? This is so delusional. Like what, you know, what, what's the reason behind this? This is not meaningful uh, uh, work. It's no way to spend your life. All those kind of things wrapped up in the simple phrase, writing is stupid. So the blog was writing a stupid Rambo edition because, you know, you look back at, at stuff like uh, a Rambo and, and, Bukowski and all those kind of things that set you on fire in high school to, uh, to, to get out in the world and, and, and live life. They, you look back and try to read them again. They all seem so pretentious and, and, and Rambo's at the top of the heap. And uh, I looked into it and Rambo turns out at 19 years old, he decided too that life was uh, uh, more worth living than writing about and writing was stupid and he quit and he went and became a gun runner in Africa, which sounds a lot more exciting than sitting behind a, 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 a you know, a desk in Paris uh, writing poetry. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
that that was the, the idea. And, you know, there's been a point in my life early on when I decided, you know, I don't want to necessarily write books, but I definitely want to live like the characters in books. And uh, fortunately, uh, or unfortunately, I, I, I checked a lot of those uh, checks on my bucket list. And uh, yeah, I've, I've certainly lived a, a life that's uh, worth writing about, but it's uh, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy life I chose. <laughs> it was interesting. Well, I have to imagine you brought some of those interesting experiences, uh, at least the color and flavor of them, into your books. Uh, the, that's how Coldwater reads, and I'm looking forward to seeing if that's how the others read as well. Thank you. Thank you. They, uh, uh, yeah, they all, they've all got a bit of uh, personal pain sewn in. Well, it's always uh, good to get the musician's musician on the show, so to speak, and uh, I want to tell you, uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure, truly. Uh, I appreciate it, and uh, I hope we can uh, talk again soon. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, Tom Pitts, uh, his book, uh, Cold Water, uh, very good. I just uh, recently read it, enjoyed it. Uh, highly recommend you check it out. Uh, he's uh, very well liked by uh, the, the crowd of authors uh, in the crime fiction community that, uh, that I hang around with. And so uh, if you check out Cold Water, you will see exactly why. A quick Zafiro update for you. My novella, Down Comes the Night, episode 12 of A Grifter Song, came out on June 1st, so check that out. Uh, you can get it at Down Out Books or go to my website, frankzafiro.com, and you can link to it from there as well. June will also see the release of the second book in the Charlie 316 series that I write with Colin Conway. Never the Crime comes out. June 22nd, so I hope you'll give that a read as well. That is the second of a four-book arc, and uh, kind of cool that uh, the third book will come out in September, and the uh, final book uh, in that arc will come out in November. So those of you who are wanting your Tyler Garrett or your Wardell Clint fix uh, will not only get it, but you'll get it fast and often. And I'll let you make your own joke about that. Um, <laughs> so uh, next episode will be the season finale. And in keeping with the fact that uh, Never the Crime is coming out, my guest for that episode, actually my co-host, uh, will be Colin Conway. So uh, check that out next week. I want to say thanks to Tom for coming on the show. Thank you, Down Out Books, for being a, a great sponsor. Uh, most of all, thanks to you, the listener, for uh, giving me a reason to keep doing this every week. I appreciate you coming along for the ride. I hope it uh, brings you uh, a few moments of uh, enjoyment in these difficult times. And I hope you check out the uh, authors that come on the show because uh, their work is quite worthy of your attention. Uh, until next week, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.